Welcome to Blood and Spirit, the podcast for Black families evolving. I'm your host, Njamele Ali, and my guest today is Tanur She Writes Ali. Tanur is the founder of the Institute for, Love, for the Love of Genius in Community, better known as iLogic. She's also a prolific poet, international workshop, workshop facilitator, farmer, and home educator. In short, a millennial power center. I'm honored to be able to say that she is also my daughter. Welcome to Blood and Spirit Podcast, Nora. Before Thank you, Mom. You're welcome. You're welcome. Before we get started, I'd like to ask you something that I probably should know. And I have a guess, but I'm not sure that it is actually correct. And later on, I'll say why I'm not sure that that's correct. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that is a question I ask all my guests, which is, what is your favorite non-alcoholic drink? Coffee. Okay, that was my coffee. guess. That was my guess. So, so how did that happen? <laughs> How did that happen? Um, I fell in love with coffee on my way to school when I was 14. Um, on my way to high school, I would stop at, I would get off the, the Broad Street line on Lombard to catch the 27 bus. And there was a little uh, gas station. I don't even know if it was a gas station, but a little convenience store right there when you get off the subway. And I would go in there and get a symphony bar and a cappuccino. Wow. And um, yeah, Ooh, and I would sugar have rush. every single morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have one every single morning on the way to school. Oh, but I thought I was going to blame that. Sister Jewel for letting you know. You know what? Sister Jewel coffee was good and everything. And I did enjoy like how she would. She would give me like a tablespoon of coffee here and there or let me sip her coffee every now and then when I was real little. Um, real little. I know. Real little. Um, <laughs> I, I, I see I the disheveled ponytails right now in my brain. Right. <laughs> they gave me the taste for it, but the habit of it came, came when I was in high school. Okay, so I'm going to tell why it is that I, I wasn't quite sure that that would be the truth. And that is because okay. I have seen so many cups of coffee standing still that you poured. <laughs> okay, I'm going to tell the whole wide city world, which is, okay, <laughs> and I'll tell them where the whole wide city world came from. All right, that's from you and Omara in your youth explaining how far and wide something took place okay in the whole wide city world really? yes <laughs> and so um I, you know i didn't know that they came from me and omara i thought that was just a thing nope nope that came from you and omara i don't know you know that was probably something y'all talked about in your you know quiet times together to to both come up with that at the same time I can't say which, who started it first, but um, yes, that was from you. And in the whole wide city world, I'm going to tell the people that you pour up a lot of coffee that you don't drink. Okay. I do. Yeah. Because the whole process, okay, of making the coffee, of sitting down with the coffee, the whole process is a meditation. Uh -huh. You know what I'm saying? Yes, I and do. And so it's... It's about the drinking of the coffee and the deliciousness of it, but it's also just about the ritual of it. Uh -huh. It's probably one of the most, it's probably the most consistent ritual in my life, aside from prayer. Wow. Well, you know, uh, coffee is also, um, has, is known as a writer's drink. You know, whenever writers talk about or put up a little meme about, you know, the writer's life, there's a cup of coffee involved in that, you know. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, you know, I, I can see that. I, I appreciate the ritual of it very much as well. And it's one of my faves. I'm not sure if it's the favorite because I always have to have something with it, you know, so. But you mentioned that, that uh, ritual that you had on the way to high school, which was in Philadelphia. And you uh, later, later, you know, some years down the road, wound up in Albany, Georgia. 
and uh, wrote a poem about it, and, or two or three or four. <laughs> and so what was it like to come to Albany, Georgia from Philadelphia? Culture shock. Uh-huh. That's the first thing that comes to mind. Um, I, I, had an, I had a feeling that I knew where I was going, you know, because we had lived there when I was little, um, I figured when I got to Albany that I would have this whole nostalgic, you know, suddenly I know my my way around and, you know, how to move in this space kind of thing going on. Um, but I was not ready. Mm. I wasn't ready. I was, I was um, very outspoken, self-assured. Um, self-righteous and um, you know somewhat indignant and I had a perspective because I came from Philly I had a perspective that there was a certain amount of knowing that most people had in general right Mm -hmm. like in Philadelphia in Philadelphia people speak properly one Right. Like even the most hood of the hood people right. still have a very um, they have a grasp on how to speak in in all sorts of different situations and environments. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there's this this language of knowing that you have when you grow up in Philly. And I moved to Albany and people were like, oh, you think, you know, something. <laughs> and they were so sick of me. Like they were sick of me off rip. And wow. I didn't understand. Albany was the first place I was ever called intelligent as an insult. And wow. that was probably like the third day I was there. And I was like, huh. Very I ain't ready for this. <laughs> yeah. That's that's interesting, you know, because my impression I uh, was two thousand eight when you came uh, to Albany. And I had been here three years. I came back to take care of my, my, my mom. And um, my impression was that you dived deep into the community. In fact, I have to say that since 2005, when I came here, it is now 2019, so that's about 14 years. Since then, I think the community that you, that you created in the first year, I have not yet created. Okay, so it seemed to me that you dived instantly in the community and then that um, led to the development later on. I mean, it took some years for iLogic to grow, but Mm -hmm. that capacity to build community showed up right away. So talk about how you evolved from that culture shock into the development of iLogic and tell what iLogic is all about. You know what comes to mind when you ask that question? Who comes to mind when you ask that question? Who's it? Is um, Miss Gloria. Next door? Um, mm-hmm, Miss Gloria, grandma's next door neighbor? Yes. Um, it wasn't very long before I connected with her, and she could speak my language. Uh-huh. She spoke her language, but she had a... Um, she had an appreciation of my intelligence and she had a a certain vision you know that was her own of of who i was and would be you Mm know Mm -hmm. um and so she was like a wonderful getaway because i was smoking cigarettes right (laughs) and trying to be trying to be as incognito as i could Mm-hmm. Um, with my smoking and she smoked and I could go over her house and smoke a cigarette with her and um, talk about stuff okay. and I could be as raw and and straight up and honest about how I was feeling and what I was thinking as I wanted to and she could feel it mm-hmm. um, and she introduced me to a few people um, who she was connected to through her church. Oh, I wish I could remember the sister's name. Um, 
wonderful sister. I cannot remember her name for anything. Works at Publix. And um, it's just this, this light and, and sweet lady. And she introduced me to her. And um, for some reason, one day, she said, um, I was really struggling. I mean, I was struggling emotionally. I was struggling financially on a bunch of different levels. And um, so she invited me to come to her church. And I was like, no, I'm good. I don't want to go. Like, I don't do church. I'm not into that. And she was like, girl, I don't mean come for church. I mean, come know this poet. I want you to come meet this poet. Come in the evening. And I was like, oh, okay, I can do that. You know, you know a poet? All right. You know, I can can get down with that. And that's when I was introduced to PM. Okay. And, um, yeah, and PM had been um, doing, it had been a few years since he had done it, but they did an open mic some years before I got to Albany um, that was really popular, that lasted a long time. And um, we just started spitting. It was like almost, almost immediately we met and then he, you know, he said something about being a poet and I was like, all right, well, spit something then. And he was ready. <laughs> and he was like, all right, your turn. And I was ready. And then we just, I mean, we must have went back and forth for two hours. Um, wow. Just sharing poetry and, and talking about experiences. And um, he had been from Massachusetts or spent time in Massachusetts somehow and all these sorts of things. So he had a an outside of Albany perspective um, yes. that, that helped me to get grounded to know that there were artists there that I would be able to build with and connect with. Um, And so first there was the introduction to the sister and then there was the introduction to the poetry. And so between those two connections, things started to build from there. Awesome. And also um, you very shortly connected with the um, Art Institute, not Art Institute, um, what's the center downtown, the, the Council on the Arts. You connected with um, that group. You know, there was a social artistry uh, activity going on that uh, you found out about. You know, there was a, that that circle, which I can say is more or less the, at that time, well, at that moment, it was very white. Um, you connected in with that. You had done some research before you got here with the Georgia Arts Council and that kind of stuff. And, um, and, you know, the, the outgrowth of those connections have continued to snowball over the years as well. So, and so that talks about, you know, the ambassadorship that you have been able to do since, you know, we made that prediction when you were in the fifth grade that you were going to be an ambassador in life. And that is definitely um, come true. So you're a prolific poet. You know, you talked about, you know, connecting with PM, PM Sweet. Correct. Is it sweet or sweets? One sweet or sweet. more than one sweet? Reg- Reginald okay. Reginald Sweet, sweet. Who, is, um, who is still, you know, a legend in Albany, you know, as a poet, uh, as you are. And so you, you published your first book of poetry at 14 years old. Um, you became a regular at poetry events in Philadelphia. You spent uh, a day with the last poets. And, um, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So what does poetry mean to you? I mean, what, how did that, what does it mean to you? Poetry means complete freedom and connection to Mm me. Mm -hmm. Um, Which I think is very special to poetry to have something that means freedom and connection Mm -hmm. together. Um, But that's, that's what it means to me. It's this opportunity to be completely myself, to say exactly what's on my mind and to know that the um, repercussions Mm -hmm. of sharing exactly what's on my mind are more likely to create connections than divisions 
Um, whereas in general speaking, if I just say what's on my mind, um, it's much easier for it to become a point of division. Mm -hmm. uh, but with poetry, people are able to listen in a way that allows them to grasp the things that they resonate with mm -hmm. and flow from there, uh, which I think is, is such a great thing about poetry um, and, uh -huh. and has really carried my community relationships. And so those community relationships, uh, starting with PM, uh, growing out, you know, growing beyond your um, uh, connection with poetry, your your own poetry, became just. I mean, it became like a, a vehicle, and it moved from PM to to some other uh, poets in the city, and uh, you connected with, um, uh, well, you and your other poet sisters created. Um, What's it called? The pen pushes. The pen pushes, and and then you went from there. So how? So they, they, we're just going through kind of some of the steps that that were leading up to um, iLogic. So, so there was um, okay. I can kind of break it down into these steps. First, there was uh, meeting Miss Gloria. Um, being led over to to Rayma Word and meeting PM. And then, and then there was that, that period of time where I was in and out of town with the custody case and the this, that, and the other that I had to, the business I had to close up in Philadelphia. And then when I got back from closing up my business in Philadelphia, I was hungry. I needed a stage. And um, PM at that time didn't have a stage available. You know, they weren't doing uh, the open mic that they were used to doing and all that sort of thing. And so I just got on the phone and started calling colleges and um, called Darton College English Department and Rosanna answered the phone. Ah. And, um, and so I told them, hey, I'm, I'm a poet. I'm new in town. I'm looking for poets. Is there a poetry club at your school? Is there a, a group of you know, underground poets meeting, like, I need poets in my life. <laughs> and they said, well, I'm a poet, <laughs> you know. And um, and we went from there. And then, so I, I connected with Rosanna, and then she told me that she thought that there was an open mic that was happening in town, but she wasn't quite sure, but I should look into it that she thought that there was something happening downtown, but she wasn't sure. And so I started looking into that. And that's when I found out about um, Wet Mike Wednesdays. Uh -huh. And Jabril Falls and um, Kimberly Hill and uh, Tiffany Bliss King mm -hmm. and connected in with them. Mm -hmm. um, pretty immediately. And, and what I did was I didn't connect with them on the phone or prior to, I just mm -hmm. showed up one night. Okay. Open mic and killed it. I knocked <laughs> it down. I knocked it out the um, I came in and I just, I just, whew, I just, I slayed it. And, um, and they came up to me after and they were like, so now you're a part of our poetry group. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and and we connected from there and it was like boom and we immediately started writing together um you know I started coming to the open mic every every week and you know participating and at that time in Albany the arts stuff like the the things that weren't um stationary uh institutions mm -hmm. in the city like the or um or Albany Theater things that weren't those like institutions in the city were mm -hmm. slow to grow and mm -hmm. so we would come sometimes to Wet Mike Wednesdays and it would just be us mm -hmm. and we would just be taking turns on this and we mm -hmm. used it as practice mm -hmm. and um and I was serious about my practice so I would be coming in trying to figure out how to memorize and I always would be forgetting my poems at that time mm -hmm. but I just kept going I just kept kept trying and kept working on it. And, um, and so that relationship built. And then fast forward a couple of years, um, 
those relationships started to break down for major reasons that were that were important for me learning about what my values were mm-hmm. and how I wanted to present myself, mm-hmm. how I wanted to um, how I wanted to use my art for justice mm-hmm. and and how responsible I felt for justice as a result of being an artist. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but in the course of that, I also met Capiche Peterson. Um, I met uh, Monica King, you know, a number of people who who just really helped me to build relationships that were about family, um, about village, and about really understanding that all sorts of different people can connect and you don't have to live life the same way, but mm-hmm. having a set of principles that you live by mm-hmm. um, can be so, so key and important. And so when, when I stopped doing Wet Mike Wednesdays, uh, Monica was, I mean, Monica has always showed up in a way that has been so just on time, you know, mm-hmm. just so like, mm, like she's like right in there. It's like the ancestors whisper in her ear, like call to the world. You know, right, um, right. And she called me up one day and um, invited me to go to lunch with her. And so we were going to Cafe 230. It was my first time going to Cafe 230. Um, BJ Fletcher's restaurant. Right. It was so nice when it was down there. Nice. Such a good spot. Yeah. And um, so we sat on the you know, the indoor balcony that they had in there and had lunch and enjoyed. And when we finished lunch, she said, I just want to take you around the corner. I want to take you to this little shop around the corner and um, introduce you to these folks because I just got a feeling about this. And we went in to Global Essence. Oh, my gosh. And yeah. And that was when I met um, Patrick and Beverly. And that was, I mean, that was like, everything shifted. It was like, boom, you know, immediate. First off, someplace in Albany to get some raw shea butter, whipped, what, (laughs) you know, like, foremost, like, oh, we got a shea butter spot. All right. You know, Um, but they had it set up so beautifully in there. And my conversation with Patrick just flowed immediately. And um, Monica, being who she is, ever the hostess in any environment, you know, um, said, um, well, you know, Tenor's a poet. And it seems like y'all, you know, need a little something extra going on in here, you know. And before we left, we had decided unplugged poetry on Monday nights. And um, I went home, drew up a flyer. At that time, I was riding a bike around town to handle whatever I needed to handle and um, came back on the bike with the flyers and Unplugged Poetry started. And Unplugged was the beginning of like, oh no, this is this is going to be serious. You know, my, my relationship with this city is going to be serious. Um, so it went from, from wet mic to Unplugged and then from Unplugged to the D-Town Arts Coalition. As a result of having Unplugged, I was invited into the D-Town Arts Coalition, which was a crazy dope, talented group of artists that, um, that were trying to make stuff happen in the city. And so I joined up with them. And then we connected up with um, the downtown manager at the time, who was uh, at that time, Aaron Blair, and he had crazy ideas of cool stuff to do. And so we started doing the rooftop um, parties uh, downtown on the first Fridays. And so it just kind of ballooned one thing after another. And in the course of that, the relationships grew. Um, Rosanna stayed in, in relationship the whole time, you know, followed the whole thing through... Um, Capiche stayed in relationship the whole time and it just grew and, and snowballed from there. 
that's that's pretty awesome. And those relations and those relationships still um, still feed you uh, so much. And and Capiche, Capiche was my first um, interview, you know, and that was uh, so mm-hmm. wonderful, you know, because and, and she really um, demonstrated and showed those uh, those principles of family that you talked about, you know, that 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 are just so solid. And um, her family history is, is, you know, so deep. And some of the strengths that they have in their family are some, some really great stuff that, that we'll be able to share. And I know, and because I know you and I know the other activities that were taking place, and I know that what we're talking about is the tip of the mountain, you know, and there's so much stuff that was also driving all of this. It's, it's really instructive in um, knowing that when you're talking to people about, you know, uh, what happened, what was point A, and then what was point B, and what was point C, there was so much stuff that was going on between point A and point B that, you know, and and I would like to do that. I would like to really, (laughs) really be able to have a conversation that, not right now, but have a conversation that goes into the mountain. It go, you know, like that follows, you know, the caves and the and and the and the little rivulets and the rivers that flow inside of the mountain because those are the things that that really are responsible, you know, for keep for continuing to push that mountain up out of the earth. You know, that's yeah. and um so I really want to be able to do that. Um, you know, I just don't think that right now is that moment. So, no, but I, no, but I go ahead. I would like to to go into how that turned into iLogic, right? Okay. So, please. So that was kind of the original question, but there were so many, um, so many pieces to what built iLogic. Um, after building Unplugged, uh, around let's see, Unplugged started in 2011, mm-hmm. and uh, so the year before Unplugged started, I moved into CME. I moved into the Albany Housing Authority, um, OB Hines um, apartment complex. And so when I was there, I loved the design of it. I loved the design of the apartments, how all the backyards faced each other into a square and everyone's kitchen looked out into the backyard, right? Like that was, that was so dope to me um, because you could sit on your front porch and you can, you can get to know the neighbors who are, who are right here in line with you. And you could sit on your back porch and you could get to know the na- all of the neighbors on your block. Um, and so being in OB Hines, was also when I started homeschooling and homeschooling caused the children to be available to all all ages of children who were some were out of school and and hadn't gotten into school yet um other parents were there who had children in the same ages as mine I think Shakai was two two and a half no 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 seven eight nine ten Shakai was three um, when we moved into CME and he had just turned three. And, um, so, so that was a chance to start to get to know the community. And then when the homeschooling began, it was somehow as a result of homeschooling, even though the rest, most of the children in the neighborhood that were, um, Reiki and Azani's ages, my oldest two children's ages were in school, they're being homeschool caused them to go out and get friends and bring them back home which then caused me to always have a group of children that I was teaching in the house about one thing or another and so because at that time I was also cooking all the time it seemed like I was cooking all the time um then I you know I started doing cooking classes because it was like, what do you mean you never saw anybody, anybody make biscuits? You know, oh, you know, oh, let's make some pizza, you know. And so that kind of grew into um, 
noticing things that the children were needing to learn. I noticed immediately how few of the children were having conversations with adults. They were listening to adult conversations, but they weren't engaging in conversations with adults um, or being engaged. And so I started being the adult in the neighborhood who was having conversations um, with the children. And they started coming for it. You know, whether they were coming to sit around and eat or whether they were coming to talk or whether they were coming to play with the children, um, there was a, a course that started to be built naturally. Um, you know, when you come and knock on the door, at first they would just bang on the door and say, Shakaya. And it was, hold up, homie, who are you? You know, when you knock on the door, first off, don't knock like you the police, because then you're going to get an answer like you the police. So <laughs> first and foremost, you know, know how to knock on the door. And then introduce yourself. You haven't met me before. So you need to say who you are, and you need to find out who I am, okay? And then so it, it just became an organic building of a school, you know? Um, and so that at first started off to me as, as dropout university. Um, because for me, I had, okay, so also by that point, I had gone ahead and stopped going to Albany State. Uh, so many, there's so many little rivets going on in that time. <laughs> but I had been going to Albany State, then I stopped going to Albany State. And, um, at the point where I stopped going to Albany State, I had been in and out of college for 10 years, just kind of taking whatever classes I was interested in and, you know, learning and doing the thing and um, all of that. And so because I was a dropout, but I felt like my intelligence and my experience had so much to offer, I recognized myself in the other people who were called dropouts in the community. And so then that started the conversation of, okay, so this is like dropout university. You know, this is all the folks who are not being structurally educated. Um, let's get together and teach each other. And so that was, that was kind of the beginning of it. And then one day I noticed on my water bill Water, gas, and light, boy, I tell you. Um, I noticed on my bill that I was being charged the same thing that you were being charged for garbage services, except you had a dumpster of your own, and I had a dumpster that I shared with 30 neighbors, and it didn't make sense to me that our garbage bill was the same. And so I started to ask my neighbors about that. And that was the beginning of me knocking on 215 doors every Wednesday to talk to my neighbors and find out what we were all experiencing that were the same problems and what we were experiencing that were the same successes and how we could help each other to build and advocate for each other. That. So that was that that's awesome so and that that structure and and I love the conversation about the the architecture of uh o b Hines which is which is the kind of um architecture that I grew up in the first uh seven or so years of my life at washington homes uh projects um which is which uh was destroyed in the flood of either ninety four or ninety eight I don't know which one but at any rate um that architecture is so important for community because what the architecture that we that most um, houses are most streets are is lin is so linear that there's mm -hmm. a um, there's this this dividing line down the middle of all the streets and mm -hmm. that that that's a problem that's a problem because it, it doesn't allow the people who are in the neighborhood um, to also be a community. Right. And right. So, so, so I really, I really appreciate um, that part of it. And I appreciate um, the opportunity 
that it gave you to to meet and connect with your neighbors but 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 that um the thing with water gas and light and uh taking that ambassadorial step to go around and actually really reach out at a deeper level with your with your neighbors and find out okay what's behind the door what's on the other mm -hmm. side of the door what's 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 really um, some of those issues and successes that you're experiencing that are going to, that we can use to make all of our lives better. And, right. you know, which of course I can relate to because um, that's what blood and spirit is uh, working to do. And so, all right. So now you have a school that is your home. That's a, um, mm -hmm. that's a community center. Um, and, and, and a place for advocacy. And so, so now what's next for our logic? That's what's the next step getting us to our logic? Shaquangla Culliver. <laughs> <laughs> Shaquangla Culliver. Um, AKA Punkin. Mm-hmm. Um, I had met Punkin before because her children and my children had become friends. And so, and she was one of the very, very few, maybe one of two parents in the community whose children came to my house on a regular basis, who mm -hmm. before their children were coming to my house on a regular basis, came to my house to meet me. Okay. Came and knocked on the door and said, I need to know who you are because my daughter keeps talking about coming over here and playing with your children. So can I come in? Awesome. <laughs> and so we connected immediately just based on that alone. Oh, you need to know where your children are like me? All right. That, you know. <laughs> and so when the conversation about water, gas, and light came about, she was a huge asset because she had previously lived in Miami and had been a part of a, a housing authority community that had been gentrified. And in mm. the process of the gentrification of the projects that she was living in, became a community advocate for what the homeowners and also what the people who were renting deserved and were legally entitled to. And so she became one of the key voices in what people ought to do. And she was like, I ain't finna go in there and fight with them people and this, that, and the other, but you need to, and this is what you tell them. And this is what you say. And go look for this article and go on the HUD website and go here and there and da 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 da. And this is, and so she, she became so key because her experience, her intelligence, her understanding of how these things worked and how these relationships had to build was so present and she was so willing to share um and willing to willing to fight for it too but she was like i ain't finna go in that meeting because i don't want to but i'll tell you everything you need to know and i'll sign whatever i need to sign petitions whatever okay um and so our relationship built really organically but she was she was one of the core allies at the very beginning to help me understand that i could that I could help the community understand that we were capable of getting what we deserve um, and capable of not being taken advantage of. Um, and so she was key. And then also with the door to doors, I met Miss Lillian Williams, who was um, an elder woman who, as soon as I started going door to door, I mean, the first day I went door to door, she opened that door and I told her what I was there for. And she said, come in. I've been waiting for somebody like my mama. <laughs> and she was, I think she was 69 at the time and had been raised in that community. Her mother, had lived in that community and her grandmother had lived in that community. And she 
her, the last person that she knew who did something like I did was her mother there. And so she took me under her wing and taught me what she knew. And so it, it just, it just built from there. It just became the neighbor's initiative and the neighbor's initiative was like, we here, you know, and we know something about, um, about what we're capable of and what we're worth and we're not going to accept anything less. And um, and then at that same time, you were at Albany State getting your degree in uh, public administration. And so as, as the Neighbors Initiative built, you were also taking all these classes and learning all this information about how to administer public programs, programs for the public um, and by the public. And so you had the, the understanding and capacity to help to move things out of um, somewhat, they were still somewhat in a, in a victim mindset. You know, what are they doing to us? It was kind of coming from that place at first. And you helped to bring it to kind of almost 180 into this place of this is what we can do this is what we see as a problem, and these are the solutions that we're bringing. And we are not a nation of dropouts. We're not a university of dropouts. We're an institute for the love of the genius that we already see. And so when you brought that name to four, it was like, oh yeah, this is this is this is it. You know, this this is real. This is happening. And it's and it became for me, in my mind, it became an opportunity to see beyond the, the boundaries of our community and to see ourselves as, as being able to become a model for what was possible in communities like ours. That's awesome. That is, that's really awesome. Um, and I, I want to take a couple of steps backward um, because we just got sort of mention the fact that you were homeschooling the children and um and that went on for what about seven years that you homeschooled mm -hmm. seven years okay and so what what made that happen yes six and a half seven years what made that decision take place Reiki was being bullied at school, um, Reiki was going to Lamar Reese and was in fifth grade and was being bullied. I remember a phone call that I got on my, um, on my voicemail that was the scariest sound of a little child's voice um, cussing and, and threatening murder. Whoa. And, um, and I came to the school to address it because it was one of Reiki's classmates and their position was they had no, they had no say in what happens off school grounds. Um, and wouldn't take a position on it. Wouldn't, um, set up a meeting between me and the parents of that child, that fifth grader, you know, and it's like, what do you mean you won't set up a meeting with a child who's calling and who's in your school and threatening to kill someone? What do you mean? Um, and that didn't go anywhere. And then there was, um, an incident where Reiki's teacher had her stand up in front of class and humiliated her um, by identifying Reiki as the slow one in the class. And this is at a time where on all of, on all of everything, Reiki had the highest scores of everybody, okay? Um, this is the brightest child in the grade period, okay? Highest scores on standardized tests, highest class grades, straight A's, 
blah, blah, blah. And because Reiki had a confidence issue and would go over things three times before being willing to turn it in, this particular teacher um, stood her up in front of class and identified that she would not be able to make it because she was slow, slower than everybody else. And then there was no disciplinary action for the teacher. And then there was tonsillitis. Highest test scores, highest grades of anybody in the whole fifth grade and da 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 da. And then Reiki got tonsillitis and had to be out of school for 10 days. And the limit for absences was nine days. And I was told that Reiki wouldn't be promoted to middle school. Even though in the 10 days out of school, Reiki completed all of the coursework, all of the homework and all of the classwork that was given out. Reiki completed all of that, got hundreds on all of it. And they said, well, no, she's gonna have to repeat the fifth grade because of these absences. I was done. I was completely done. And I went up to the, to the school and came into the office and asked for the withdrawal papers and they fought me on it. No, you can't withdraw Reiki. Reiki is the highest testing student in the grade and da 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 da. Well, you should have thought about how you treat that child. Like you should have, you should have thought about it. And I'm not thinking about it anymore. I'm going to take this child's education into my own hands because screw you. How dare you? And, um, and then that's not including the whole kidnapping scene where the, <laughs> the vice principal was able to be in touch with the people who had my child. You know, I, we're going to leave that for another conversation too. Um, but yeah, that was, that was the beginning of homeschool. That was, um, and I, I, I didn't interrupt, and I want to uh, take this opportunity to uh, say to the listeners that um, uh, just like if you, if you call Tanur today um, and you don't reach her, her message will let you know that she's in a neck of the woods that may cause, uh, you know, your call not to come through. Okay. <laughs> and uh, that's, that, that's also, we're getting a little bit of that in the course of this uh, conversation because uh, we're, we're remotely connecting uh, from your neck of the woods uh, to Albany. And uh, so sometimes, you know, if, if I um, get in there a little bit, I'm, I'm, see, I'm hearing that um, this, there's a little bit of a delay and it makes it kind of go, Wah! you know, so I'm making sure that I don't interrupt you or also speak while you're speaking, although that was very hard um, just now <laughs> listening to that, because some of those details um, uh, I don't recall right now. During the time, you know, I was I was still taking care of of um, my mother, and she was mother, you know, your grandma, grand grand, and she was, um, you know, so so my head was all over the place. But that was outrageous, outrageous yeah. um, behavior, outrageous activity on the part. I do recall the um, the kidnapping, the the incorrect. Um, treatment by a parent who, uh, who, uh, and, a, and grandparent who, um, took Reiki out of town and did not, um, respond to phone calls, messages, and, uh, you and know, were not at the hotel that they said they would be at. Right. They were not, not on location <laughs> and came back, uh, to town without notification, uh, contacted the vice principal, and basically dropped Reiki off at the police station and, and refused to stay there until you, one of us arrived. You, and of course, both of us were going to arrive. And so that was, um, and, and the opportunity for, for the vice principal to, um, to ambassador that situation, you know, to, to try to, um, uh, to, to, to be an effective go-between 
um, was not taken up. And so, so yeah. And, and so the, it, it's about being able to take your experience and then mm-hmm. turn that into a power relationship. And so it, that's one of those things that you have to kind of, in a way, thank them because what you've been able mm-hmm. to do uh, in a homeschool environment has been phenomenal. And, and the amount of understanding of what children really need and the, and the extent of the type of education, just like you were beginning to see uh, in O.B. Hines, what, what life skills children were lacking uh, in the neighborhood, um, then you were able to also apply that to your own children and make sure that they receive uh, a full range of, of life skills uh, as they went along. So you returned to public school this this past school year, starting in 2018, right? And so, what right. was that like? Did that remind you Horrifying. of the let's go. Oh my goodness! Really, it was like all of the all of the worst nightmares of. I mean, stuff that I stuff that I hadn't even, it wasn't even nightmares. You know what I'm saying? Like things that I hadn't even fathomed would be an issue, were an issue. And um, so we're back to homeschool. <laughs> right. right. We, you know, one year that um, Ricky came out of public school in fifth grade, um, came back in in 12th grade, knocked 12th grade completely completely out of the park okay and um and now Azani and Shakai are going to be homeschooled next year um because because what has become evident to me is that the school to prison pipeline is a real active thing um the schools are a veritable toilet and they are flushing children down the drain. And the mechanisms for making that happen, for making that flow be such a a rush and stop, a rush and stop like a toilet does, um, is so effective. The people who are in place to drive that machine, To, to a large extent, don't even know their place in the machine. They're just doing their job. Everyone needs to just do what they're supposed to do. And in the process of that, they end up damaging the entire community. And so that has been my experience of um, life in public school this year. Um, and I ain't doing it no more. I hear you. And um, I do want to talk, um, of course, at, a, at another time we'll talk more. We have so much to talk about that we just, you know, we just have to kind of like introduce the topic and um, right. and put that on hold for to really go deep uh, at another time. The, the school to prison pipeline. Just give one example of sort of that, that flush and stop um, mechanism that you saw? Uh, one example of it is, um, oh, I can give a very brief example. So at any given time in the local high school here, um, Green County High School, at any given time, 30% of the student body is in what they call alternative school. And rather than, um, Rather than create a system where they have, let's say, an active counselor who's identifying the issues that the students are going through and working with the families to address the issues that the students are going through that may be causing disruptions in class, problems with schoolwork, what have you, um, they do sentencing. 
And so suspensions are no longer called suspensions. They're called sentences. So they're using the language of the prison in the school. And that language and that training that not only does it not matter where you're coming from and what you're going through and what is causing your behavior, but you will be punished for it, period. And your punishment is ready and waiting for you. Um, so that's one example that I can give. That, that's a chilling, uh, a chilling example. And so tell us, tell us a little bit about uh, that neck of the woods where you are. And Solomon's Garden. It is, it is so beautiful. It's Green County, right? And I'm sure it's green with an E. I'm sure it's named after some, I don't know, Civil War person or something, you know, whose last name was Green. But everybody here calls it Green County. And they're like, you call it Green County? Good, it's so dang green. And it's beautiful. Um, I love the rolling hills. Um, I love the way that the fog rises every morning, no matter what the weather is, okay? The dew falls just before sunrise, and as the sun comes up, the fog rises into the sky, and it just creates this gorgeous, serene atmosphere. And it's 88% black, but if you ask anybody here, it's 98% black. Um, and when you walk into the courthouse, the walls are lined with portraits of members of the community who you can see walking through town at any given time. Families, uh, community members, civil rights activists who have been, I mean, these are folks, this is, I live, I live eight miles from the closest gas station, 15 miles from town, okay? Um, I have to drive at least five miles to get to a mailbox other than my own. You know, a mailbox that you can drop a letter into, okay? Um, and yet, there's, there's this tight-knit sense of the community. Everybody knows each other. And these long backwoods country roads are literally roads that people marched on to the March on Washington. And I'm trying to think, you know, back into the 60s, how people decided to march these roads, okay, to go anywhere for anything, okay? Because there's no joke out here. Um, right now, if I decide to take that eight-mile hike to the gas station, okay, I need to be prepared for snakes or dogs or crazy people, you know what I mean, logging trucks, police, whatever, okay? Um, and so the strength and, and resiliency of this community, the um, understanding of, of the people's worth and value is, is deep-seated. Um, it exists on a deep level. And then there's this sheen over it of oppression of um, the national model of white supremacy that operates as a sheen over that deep beauty. And so I'm in, I'm in love with this place um, because, of its, because of its power and because of its consistent requirement to reach for that power. Um, and because in my walk through this community so far, it's, it's just barely, it'll be two years in August. Um, so I'm three months away from being here for two years. 
Um, but just in that short amount of time, the people that I've met here, so many of them are active in shifting the paradigm of, um, of poverty and oppression um, that exists. And I'm excited about that. And then the sign, um, Utah is, is the name of the town. And the, the sign when you're coming into town says pride in the present, hope for the future. And that to me speaks volumes. Um, and so, yeah, so that's where I am. And you are growing food there, right? You are uh, starting the farm that uh, was presaged by your attending uh, an agricultural high school in Philadelphia and graduating from Saul uh, High School in Philadelphia. So tell us about your, your farm vision and how our logic fits into that vision. Well, um, the vision, the, the farm here, our little five acre plot uh, that's three and a half acres of woods and about an acre and a half of um, yard and garden is nestled so sweetly by the side of this road. And, um, and so yes, we're growing food. We have had three harvests so far um, in this year and a half that we've been here that have been really productive and beautiful, growing everything from uh, tomatoes and okra and um, jalapenos and cayenne and everything, squash and um, fruit and all sorts of stuff, collard greens and, and cabbage and kale. Um, and the vision for it, the vision for Solomon's Garden, named after my daddy who was a planter of seeds, um, is to see a place where the community can come together, the local community and the global community that I've built over time um, and, and collected and collaborated with over time can come here and be reminded of our connections to the land and our capacity to heal ourselves in the way that the land heals herself over and over and over again. Um, and so, so the vision is to create a, a productive garden with a roadside farm stand that allows people to be able to buy fresh, local, organic food um, right by the side of the road. And also a hub of connection um, between artists and agriculturalists. I'm finding here so much that I am not alone in my way of being an artist and an agriculturalist, a person who grows my creativity um, and my food. And there are so many people. Um, uh, a musician that I met, uh, Clarence Davis, writes some of the most awesome blues music I've heard. I mean, gritty, you know, hole in the wall, good old fashioned blues music, right? That he writes in the pea field, you know? He plants his peas and then he sits in the field and watches his peas grow and pulls out his guitar and writes his music. And, um, and so that's what I see building, is a place where people can come and uh, what they call fellowship, and, um, you know, enjoy and grow and learn together. And that fits into the vision for iLogic because iLogic is really about cultivating relationships and cultivating capacity. Mm, awesome. Awesome. And that right there is a great place for us to pause because um, we could, we're going to talk some more. I want to come back because um, very shortly I want to do this in two segments because I do definitely want to uh, come back and talk to you about um, how did you come about? And maybe, maybe we will be able to um, kind of demonstrate uh, just a little bit of going beneath the surface. You know, we might even wind up with some kind of sensitivity session between you. I mean, you can tell me some stuff that 
um, you've been waiting to tell me for a while. You know, it's like, you know what, listen. You know what I mean? It could go like that. But right now, I, was just, I just want to um, close out and give our, our listeners an opportunity to um, go and have a break, get a, get a, uh, a soda, do whatever, do whatever you do, and come back. Mm-hmm. And so we'll close out for right now and come back and start with part two um, on the other side. And so thank you so much for, for this. I mean, I know there are um, like mm, so many gems in there for folks to, to take on and to uh, appreciate and, and, you know, incorporate in their, in their lives and in their journeys and stuff. And so we're going to uh, come back and talk about um, how you came to be your perspective on that. So, <laughs> all Thank right, you then. so much for having me on Blood and Spirit. I enjoy listening to this podcast so much and I love what it's about. And I love the way that you carry the interviews and the way that you host. And I know I'm a little long-winded, so it's, it's probably a process to, um, to interview with me. But I'm looking forward to the next segment, and I'm so grateful for this opportunity. Thank you so much, Mom. Thank you, Noor. I love you. And um, that's it. That's what it's about, Blood and Spirit. Thank you, listeners. We will be back on the other side. Love you, too. Have a good day.